Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 4, verses 31 through 44. This can be found on page 1597 in your pew Bibles. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out? And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The word of the Lord. I'm going to repeat that uh, page number for our scripture text for you, page 1597, 1597. I always find it a helpful thing to be able to refer to God's Word uh, during a message, and I I hope that you'll make that a practice as well. Page 1597, we continue to look at Luke's gospel and Luke's presentation of Jesus uh, to us. Each of the Gospels has a little different point of view on on who Jesus is, never contrasting, never conflicting, but broadening our view of Jesus and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And Luke has um, has a pretty incredible view of Christ, and we'll begin to pick up some on that this morning. Friends, in, in Christ, I know my mind is a little murky as I get older, especially when I try to remember things from the past, but I think it was high school chemistry class when we uh, learned about compounds, chemical compounds. A compound, I believe, is formed when uh, different elements combine to make sort of a, a new substance. For instance, water is a compound that we know is made up of the atoms of of hydrogen and oxygen, right? H2O. Now, water is a, is a great compound. Water gives life, right? <clears throat> we need water. Water is everything to us. And yet, one of our scientific experiments back there in high school was to try and break it down into its different elements. And so, we stuck some electrodes in the water and... Um, 
probably a lot of other activity going on around that, but throughout the whole process we divided the hydrogen from the oxygen. Now, hydrogen and oxygen are, are great things too, right? They're wonderful elements. There's a lot of energy in hydrogen, especially today we're trying to figure out how to make this process easier. And we all know that oxygen, we breathe, we need that for life as well. But there's something really special when you bring these two things together and they become water. I mean, water is, is good. And the gospel, I think, is, is a lot like that compound water. The gospel is an incredible thing. And, and the different parts, the different elements that make it up, well, those things also are good but they're not as great as the whole. The distinct parts of the gospel, the different parts of the gospel, are never as much as the whole thing together. And I think one of the things our text is getting at this morning is, is sort of a warning not to break down the compound of the gospel. Don't reduce it. Don't break it down. Um, let's just take a quick look again at the text that we have before us today. The location of Jesus' ministry has, has shifted just minorly. He's moved from Nazareth now to Capernaum. He's still in that same region of, of Galilee, basically, but he's in a new town. It's not his hometown any longer. And he's teaching and preaching in the synagogue, so that ministry goes on. When it becomes obvious in this setting that there is a demon in the congregation. And so Jesus orders that demon out of its host, and it goes, and the people we read are amazed. They're amazed. Jesus then leaves the synagogue. He heads over to Peter's house, where he finds that Peter's mother-in-law is feverish, and, and so he rebukes that fever, and he heals her, and they all have dinner together. That scene continues, that domestic scene. Um, the sun sets, and so the Sabbath draws to a close, right? And when the Sabbath draws to a close, all the other people around feel the freedom now to travel, to leave their homes. And so they all bring their mothers-in-law um, over to Peter's house to have Jesus heal them. Now, I just want to pause there and have us think about the wonder of the gospel that Luke just presents to us or presented to us. I mean, on the one hand, the gospel is cosmic, Luke shows us a picture of Jesus invading the very territory of Satan himself, the enclaves of power, the systems of abuse and oppression where the devil is most at work. And Jesus shows himself to be more than adequate to defeat Satan even on his own turf. And so Luke gives us this, this cosmic picture of of the authority and the power of Jesus Christ who can enter right in to Satan's safe space and beat him at his own game. At the same time, the gospel is incredibly domestic. It's cosmic, but it's, it's domestic. 
I mean, Jesus comes into the home of his friend, Simon, and he heals his mother-in-law of a fever. And then when all the people bring their sick to Jesus, Luke tells us that on each one of them, each one of them, Jesus lays his hands. Each of them. He touches them. He gives everyone intimate attention. That, that word just... Um, <laughs> uh, I tell too many Lily stories, I understand that, but um, I drive around in our van, right, and she's in back of me in her car seat, and I, I usually, you know, I, I'm listening to the radio or I'm just lost in thought, and all of a sudden I'll hear this rather demanding voice behind me, pay attention, pay attention, and you can tell she's in school now, right? Um, <laughs> But she's telling me, pay attention to me. I've got something to say. You don't have to say that to Jesus. He pays attention to everyone. We have a Savior who does both of these things. He conquers Satan himself, and he conquers the flu. He works in that public space. He works in that private space of the home. He deals with cosmic concerns, and he pays attention to our personal problems. That's the gospel that Luke presents to us. It's a full gospel. It's, it's comprehensive. It, it's vast, and yet it's particular. It's cosmic, and yet it's domestic. It's, it's all part of our Savior's jurisdiction, every bit of it. But then we come to this phrase that I think ought to give all of us pause. And I admit that at first blush, it's the most innocuous, the most benign, the most innocent of phrases in the text. But at its heart, it's worrisome. It comes in verse 42. The people of Capernaum tried to keep Jesus from leaving there. They tried to keep him from leaving. Who can blame them? Of course they tried to keep him from leaving. I mean, if Jesus were here, wouldn't we do the same thing? But look at how Jesus responds to that. The very next verse. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Because that is why I was sent I must. I was sent. Jesus uses here what's, what's referred to as the divine must. I must preach. I must do this. Jesus appeals to the mind and the will of the divine. He gets his directives from above. And he cannot shirk those directives. He cannot shirk his responsibility that God has given him. But those directives Make, make, may it be clear, they come from above and not from below. And Jesus says, God has, has shown me his will. He's commanded me that I must continue to go on and preach. And therefore, I cannot change that, and you cannot change that. Let's be clear. You cannot change where I am to go and what I am to do. You see, this attempt 
to keep Jesus, to keep him in Capernaum, is in the end, it's an attempt to control Jesus. It's an attempt to control Jesus and his message. You see, in a way, we are, we're fine when Jesus comes to our house and he cures my mother-in-law. But let's just keep him here, right? He doesn't have to cure your mother-in-law too. What if someone else gets sick? We all want sort of our own private Jesus. Think back to last week for just a moment, okay? There, Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, right? He was preaching. He preached his very first sermon in the synagogue of Nazareth. And he preached that, basically, I have come. I'm full of the Holy Spirit, and I have come to preach the kingdom of God, the good news to the poor. We heard um, Pastor Young Kwong proclaim that last week. What was the reaction to that? What was the reaction to his first sermon? Well, the people of Nazareth, Jesus' homies, tried to kill him, right? They tried to walk him off a cliff. They too were trying to control his message. A little different style. One group tries to keep him, the other group tries to kill him. But all of them are trying to control his message. Now, what was going on in Nazareth there? Why were they trying to kill him? Well, because his gospel was too big. His gospel was too big for them. I mean, let's just, let's just review um, what happened last week in Nazareth for a moment. And we're doing this because Jesus' sermon in Luke chapter 4 is sort of the lens through which we're supposed to see all of the gospel of Luke and all of Jesus' ministry and what the kingdom of God is really about. So let's just sort of review what happened there last week, and we can get at that through another very innocuous statement that Luke makes in that text. If you look at verse 20 of chapter 4, Jesus gets up, right, and he reads his text from Isaiah 61, and then Luke tells us he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Now, in those days, that's what, that's what the rabbi did. That's when he began to preach from a sitting position, not, like a standing, not in a standing position like I do. But think about what Luke wrote there. I mean, we view that as pretty much filler, Right? I mean, that would be like saying, Nicole and James, they read God's Word from Luke chapter 4, and then they closed their folders, and they went and sat down. Wow, Luke, way to shock us. What's he getting at? Why would he tell us that? Actually, what he is getting at is by that act, Jesus threw that whole synagogue into a state of shock. The whole synagogue. Why is that? It's because everyone knew the text that Jesus was reading. Everyone knew it. Let me try and give you an illustration. I, I went and saw, I think it was a, a film this week, American Underdog. Okay? Um, I'm not going to give you a spoiler alert because if you go to see it, chances are you know the whole story. Right? It's about Kurt Warner, who's a football player. We all know why 
anyone even cares about Kurt Warner, and that's because he won a Super Bowl. It's kind of a rags-to-riches story. As a football player, nobody noticed him, nobody drafted, so on and so forth, and finally he won the Super Bowl. Rags-to-riches, right? You go to the film, and, and it's all about <clears throat> um, Kurt Warner's relationship pretty much with his wife and her family, right? Now, imagine if you were sitting at the film and you were watching this whole lead-up, this whole long story about Kurt Warner and, and uh, the woman that he loves and her kids and all of that, and then it just ended. And you never got into any of the football story. You never saw the fact that he won a Super Bowl. What would you think? You think, that was really weird, right? I mean, that was really weird. And that's what was going on in the synagogue in Nazareth. If you look at the text from Isaiah 61, okay, um, Isaiah announces, the Spirit of the Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor and, and release for the oppressed. And what, what Isaiah is proclaiming there is the time of the year of the Lord. And what that is, it's the Old Testament year of jubilee. Okay, you remember the year of Jubilee? The prophets talked about it. They, they were supposed to practice this in Israel in the Old Testament. Every 50 years, every 50 years was to be a year of Jubilee. And on that year, all of the debts would be canceled. All of the debts would be canceled. If you had to sell your property, all right, to get yourself out of debt, if you had to sell yourself into slavery to pay off your debts, every 50 years, all of those debts were to be forgiven. All of that property was to go back to its original owner. The year of Jubilee was a time of release. It was a time of newness of life, new opportunities, a new beginning, all of it. And that's what Isaiah is proclaiming in Isaiah chapter 61. There is a day that the Messiah will come and he will bring with him the year of Jubilee, the year of renewal, forgiveness of all debts, New beginning for everyone, okay? Now, <clears throat> this is how the Isaiah text actually reads. I don't know if I even have this in front of me. Um, but what it says is he announces the year of Jubilee, and then right after it, he says, and the day of the vengeance of our God. And the day of the vengeance of our God. Two things are announced by Isaiah. The year of Jubilee, okay, release from all oppression. And the day of vengeance of our God, the vengeance of our God. What is that? That's, that's the judgment, okay? The Jews were expecting the Messiah would bring history to an end and would judge all sinners, all the unrighteous. Who were the unrighteous in their minds? The Gentiles. So they had one particular view of this text. God would return, the Messiah would come, I should say, and it would be the year of jubilee for all of the Jews. And for the Gentiles, it would be the day of vengeance, the day of the vengeance of our God. And they would all suffer punishment. Jesus preaches this text. He says, today it's fulfilled. Nothing, not a word about the vengeance of our God. Now, we're thankful for that because we understand what Jesus was getting at. 
What he was saying is not that there will never come a day of vengeance. That day is still ahead. What Jesus was proclaiming, though, is that the day of vengeance would come in him. In other words, the vengeance of God would be delayed. And it would be delayed, why? To give all of those Gentiles an opportunity, and all of the Jews as well, an opportunity to hide themselves in Jesus Christ. To humble themselves and come to Him to have their need for forgiveness of sin met. And then one day, and the Gospels proclaim this, one day God will return again, and it will be a day of vengeance. Only it won't be just the Gentiles who are punished, but all of those who have not taken refuge in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So Jesus delays the day of vengeance, but he also changes the line of demarcation. The line is no longer strictly between Jews and Gentiles. The line is now between those who trust in Jesus and those who do not trust in Jesus. He's giving himself. He's saying, look, trust in me. Or the day of vengeance will still be ahead and it will come upon you. In other words, the gospel that Jesus was proclaiming was too big for this group. Too big for his audience. They wanted to hear salvation for the Jews, release for the Jews, and Jesus said, no, there is release for all people who come to me. They didn't like the size of that gospel. They wanted a smaller gospel that was just about them. And so what did they do? They tried to walk him off a cliff. They tried to kill him. They tried to control the message. Back to our text. <clears throat> Jesus goes to Capernaum. He performs miracles. Jesus preached, proclaimed the kingdom in Nazareth, and now he brings it into reality. Right? He brings release for the oppressed, for those who are filled with demons, for those who are feverish, for those who are sick in all sorts of ways. Jesus brings release. He brings the healing of the kingdom to them just like he preached. And what's the reaction? They try to keep him. They try to keep him here. Why? Because it's too much. <clears throat> Let me try and explain that. In what sense were they trying to keep him? As I said, wouldn't we all want to keep him among us? Well, think of, think of it more in terms of, of all the COVID relief monies that our government granted, right? All of these relief programs. Dollar after dollar after dollar. The Wall Street Journal um, reported back in December that the way they look at it, it's at least $100 billion of that money that was, was redirected, right? That was kept. In other words, it went to somebody who was supposed to disperse it to this program or this program so it would get to individuals and small businesses and all those kinds of things, all those people who really needed it, but someone along the way decided, no, I'm going to keep this for myself. 
that's what was going on here in Nazareth. They wanted to keep the gospel for themselves. They didn't want it to go out to anybody else. Friends, we still do this with the gospel. How? By taking the beautiful compound gospel and trying to break it down and split it up into its individual elements. In other words, rather than a both-and gospel, we tend to make it into an either-or gospel. And we cling to the part that we like, that fits us best, that fits our needs best. In other words, the message of the gospel okay, is both word and deed. It's word and deed. We try to make it word or deed. Yeah, tell me about the good news. Preach it. Preach it. But don't tell me to live it. Don't tell me to live it. Just preach it. The message is cosmic. It's cosmic and it's domestic. It's all of it. We try to make it either cosmic or domestic. Right? It's, It's either about justice in our cities. It's either about the sins of my heart. But it's not about both. It's not about the marketplace and the home. It's about one or the other. The message is about release from sin and release from poverty and oppression. And we make it one or the other. We celebrate release from sin, but we're not going to work for release from oppression for others. Or it's all about release from oppression. That personal sin stuff, forget about that. The message has personal moral implications. And it has public social implications. We make it either or. Which one suits me best? Jesus, let me keep you here. Let me give you one example, Martin Luther King and the fight for civil rights. If you ever read about that whole struggle against civil rights, what what may strike you as it struck me is that very few people actually argued with King about his demands for him and his entire race to be treated more justly. Rather, what they did is they often attacked his personal morality. Right? We've all heard the stories. Accused of cheating on his wife, breaking his marriage vows. And that indeed is sin. It is not right 
It is wrong. It is sin against God and offensive to Him. But this is a case of often splitting the gospel into individual atoms. Right? And we make it, or some people make it, all about personal morality and nothing about social morality. And so I can look at myself and say, well, as long as I'm faithful to my spouse, as long as I'm faithful in my marriage, it really doesn't matter if I go out and club someone over the head who's asking for the right to vote. We divide these two things. And we say, this is the gospel, this is the part I like, this really isn't the gospel. How does Jesus respond to this kind of thing? How does Jesus respond when we say, you know, it's, it's my personal purity, it, that really doesn't matter, okay? I mean, it doesn't matter who I sleep with or any of that. What matters is that I pursue justice in the marketplace, in the world. That's what I'm going to march about. That's what I'm going to get fired up about. The other doesn't matter. How does Jesus respond to that sort of thing? How does Jesus respond to Nazareth? He keeps right on going. He keeps right on walking. He keeps right on preaching. Jesus kept on preaching the kingdom of God. Why? Because he doesn't answer to us. He answers to his Father in heaven. He came to proclaim and to live out the kingdom of God, whether you and I like it or not. And that kingdom, he throws before us and he says, receive it. Receive it. It's mine. It's the Father's. It's for you. But you receive it all. When they tried to control his message in Nazareth, what did he do? They tried to throw him off a cliff. He just kept walking as if they weren't there. What did he do in Capernaum when they tried to control his message? He just kept walking and kept preaching. So what does this mean? What does it mean for people like us? It means a couple of things, at least that I want to spell out for you this morning. First of all, it means that you and I have to know the gospel. You and I have to be familiar enough with the gospel so that when we hear something that conflicts or contradicts with the gospel, we will know that. We will know that. <clears throat> Let me give you one example. Okay? People get upset with the gospel of Luke sometimes. They say it's far too much about, about the social gospel. It's far too much about bringing release to the oppressed and all that kind of stuff. It needs to be more about sin. What we don't understand is, is we don't understand Scripture. When you look at that sermon that Jesus proclaims in Luke chapter 4, when he, pro he uh, proclaims the year of Jubilee, if you look back at the Old Testament, do you know when the year of Jubilee was initiated? What inaugurated the year of Jubilee? It was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. In other words, you cannot have release for the oppressed until you have atonement from sin. And what Jesus is saying when he's saying, 
This day has come. This prophecy has been fulfilled. Jesus has offered himself as our atonement for sin. And anyone who comes to him humbly and says, Jesus, I need you to pay for my sin, to cover up my sins, Jesus says, you shall have freedom. And the freedom from sin will lead to the freedom from all oppression. The kingdom is yours. They go together. And we have to be in tune enough with the gospel to understand those two things always go together. The gospel is a compound. You cannot tear it apart. And it's a beautiful compound. It's a beautiful thing. We have to know the gospel. The second thing we have to understand is we can benefit from our fellow believers. We don't have a monopoly on our understanding of the gospel. Other people see things that we don't see. And friends, when we, when we understand what the gospel is, we'll be able to weigh those things and say, yes, that's a new side of the gospel that I didn't see before, but it's biblical, it's right, it's true. Praise the Lord. I didn't see that before. Let me give you one example. David Brooks' uh, last column. He mentions what life is like at, at Fuller Seminary these days. <clears throat> this is what he wrote. He said, after ISIS launched a series of deadly attacks on Egyptian Christians, okay, I think most of us remember when that happened <clears throat> some while ago. It says, when that happened, some American students at Fuller wanted to hold a memorial service at the school. Okay? I get that. They wanted to hold a memorial service. They wanted to grieve. They wanted to remember uh, the injustices that were done against their fellow believers. They wanted to hold a memorial service. The Egyptian students at Fuller said this. They said, in effect, what are you talking about? This is a cause for celebration. This is about acknowledging what it means to live as a Christian in the context in which you have the privilege of martyrdom. In which you have the privilege to suffer with Jesus Christ. to die for him as he died for us. Brooks says that idea is foreign to most American Christians. Yes, it is. But the Egyptians led a celebratory service which was followed by communion. We are one with Christ suffering Lord there is so much that we can learn from each other about the fullness of the gospel Jesus kept right on walking and kept right on preaching the kingdom of God the gospel will not be reduced and friends, if we follow Jesus, we too will learn and see the fullness 
the full beauty of the kingdom of God. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, forgive us when we try to control a message that was never meant for us to control. Because if we could, we would immediately turn it into something less than it really is. May we freely turn over control of the message to you, our God, to Jesus Christ, your Son, to the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, proclaiming the message of the kingdom, release from sin, release from oppression, new life, new life in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And in Him alone we offer this prayer. Amen.